It's great to be back here in this space teaching some Torah. I last got to do this during my interview in January, and so now it's exciting for me to be teaching you all this, my first Torah study as your rabbi. So it's a pleasure and it's an honor to be with you all today. So uh, into the Parsha. This week's Parsha is Va'etchanan in Deuteronomy. Um, Before we get into this specific Parsha, uh, this Shabbat is actually a special Shabbat in the Jewish cycle as well. It's called Shabbat Nachamu, um, the Shabbat of consolation or comfort. And it comes from us seeking solace in our traditional texts from the Jewish holiday that began last Monday night, or that fell last Monday night into Tuesday, uh, which was Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is the day upon which we observe several cataclysms and destructions that have befallen the Jewish people. First, it's the day that tradition understands that the temples were destroyed. Um, Additionally, there are a number of expulsions, massacres, and crusades uh, that have fallen on this day in history. And in contemporary times, it's often observed by some communities uh, as a time that they also remember the Holocaust and the destruction of European Jewry. So now we're going to come back to Tisha B'Av. Don't forget that we're in this Shabbat Nachamu, that we're coming out of that place of destruction uh, into this place of consolation, this Shabbat. Um, so I want, just want to put that out there right now before we get into the Parsha, because we'll be coming back to it. Um, so now into Va'et Hanan. Va'et Hanan literally means I pleaded or implored. It's the book of uh, Deuteronomy from 3.23 to 7.11. And uh, it's simply a huge Parsha in terms of its significance as it relates to both fundamental tenets of our faith as well as our liturgy. Uh, As you'll see shortly, it's very hard for me to overstate the gravity of this week's Parsha. So there is actually a tremendous amount to unpack if we were to go through this Parsha systematically. Um, But I'm actually going to move us a little ways directly into it. So I'd like you to go to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Does somebody want to read that line for us? Hebrew or English? <laughs> Let's start with the Hebrew. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Great, Bert. All right, can we have somebody read the English? <laughs> that I can do. All right. Hero Israel. Uh, Adonai is our God, Adonai alone. Read the verse. Yeah. Shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Okay, that, that's good. Sorry. All right. Good. Uh, so we have the Shema there. Now, I'm going to ask something unusual. Does somebody want to retranslate it for us? We have one translation there. Does the Red Book have a different translation? Uh, no. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Okay. Exactly the same. The Lord alone. Has anybody... The Lord is one. That's another translation of it. Other uh, translations that people have heard? Listen. So that's another one, is because you can unpack that listening, that verb shma, that can be hear, which is a little bit more passive, or it can be listen, which is actually a more active verb. Um, it can also mean understand, discern, pay attention to. Um, some older translations, I think, have hearken. Yes. Which, it's old English, but it's kind of like pay attention, mm-hmm. be involved with. Mm hmm. Chew upon. Or be mindful, as we say. Be mindful. Yes. Listen what I'm telling you. <laughs> Listen what I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. All of these are great translations. All of these are legitimate translations. Um, and as there are so many legitimate ways to translate this line, it should come as no surprise that there are a lot of legitimate ways to understand this line, too. There are a lot of different uh, interpretations. So I want to take us into... Uh, some different contexts of this line. So, a word on the history of the Shema. We have a second century papyrus called the Nash papyrus that has written on it uh, this piece from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 9, which is Shema, and then as you started, the Via Hafta. Uh, Directly after that, it has Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. We're not going to look at it right now, but it's more of the Shema text from the liturgy, from our traditional Shema that we recite, pieces about rains at proper times and crop yields. And then directly after that, it has Numbers 15, 37 through 41, 
which is more Shema text from our liturgy. It, that's right. For, it is the line about uh, tzitzit, about the holy garments with the fringes at the corners. So what does that tell us, that we have this written down on some scrap from the second century? Well, it's the first record of Shema removed from the biblical narrative. In other words, it has these paragraphs that have been selected from different places and woven into a single document. This is really significant. Uh, Contemporary scholarship understands that this relates to ritual or possibly liturgy of some kind. Uh, There are theorists who think it may have been used for recitation or some kind of cantation, or perhaps it was an amulet uh, of some kind. This is just standing alone? It was not part of a context? Again, we just have this fragment of it, yeah, this this piece of papyrus that has those portions of the Bible lifted out of their contexts and woven into what we today would recognize as the Shema from a prayer book. Maybe that's an underlining, the Shema, Mm -hmm. like bold underlining for variety of texts. Absolutely. We're, that's exactly where we're going with this, is why what the significance is of uplifting that particular piece and weaving that into something. So the usage of this particular kernel uh, of biblical text signals to us that by the year 100 CE, Jews, we don't know whether they were scribes or communal leaders or devotees of some kind, but that some Jews were deriving theological significance from this particular line. They were saying, okay, this particular piece of biblical text of the Torah tells us something about our God. So in it we have this core Jewish assertion of the nature of divinity, of the nature of God. We have a piece about uh, a kind of cause and effect relationship with God in terms of proper service to God and then the rains coming and the crops. And then uh, a piece about wearing these holy garments, about wearing literally the clothes of being Jewish. Um, And this narrative is woven together outside of any kind of linear fashion of just reading through the Bible. So what is the Shema at its core? Is it an oath? Is it some sort of manifesto of prayer? Or is it the origin of Jewish prayer? Um, So we'll get more into Shema and uh, biblical theology now. So does somebody want to say in a sentence or two, uh, what's the significance of the Shema? Standing on one foot. Uh, Standing on one (laughs) foot, that's right. Go for it. Yes, we have we have a couple of different. Uh... Well, I, I have a thought. Sure. And that is that it doesn't say here, people, or here without saying Israel. Mm-hmm. So it's a unifying call. It's a call not only to God but to unity of who we are. Great. It's constitutive. It constitutes us as a people in a certain way. Yeah, did you have a thought? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. It's the statement, you know, the novel aspect of the Jews in those times that we're monotheistic religion. Mm-hmm. A big breakthrough. Excellent, yes. It is this, what was a very radical departure from a polytheism of the ancient Near East. That's a really revolutionary piece, too. Yeah. That's great. Um, and I think that dovetails very nicely with talking about how it brings the people together. It's this call to say, okay, we are, this is the people who we are. This is our relationship with God. It brings us together in that very communal sense. So, um, Can I add to that? Yeah, go ahead. One of the interesting things to me is it's not as if before this line, it says in the Torah, and now the most important thing in the Torah <laughs> And now the thing that you say all the time. Right. And so I always wonder, of all the verses in the Torah that could have been pulled out, why this one in particular? And so part of the significance I see, and I don't Mm -hmm. have an answer to that question, but part of the significance that I see in the Shema is that it was 
pulled out mm-hmm. and that our people, in fact, have gravitated around this phrase that is very difficult to translate mm-hmm. and that it has become the center of what we're supposed to say at night before we go to sleep. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be the last words before you die. Mm-hmm. Uh, supposedly, it's one of the first things a child is taught. And so a lot of the significance to me, I think this is following on what Susan said, is that we have adopted it, mm-hmm. that the Jewish people have given it a meaning and a significance that is not particularly in the text, at least as I read the text. Bert, that's fantastic. We're actually going to get into some of those pieces uh, a little bit further down the line. That's great. Um, yeah, go ahead, and then we'll... Uh, yes, go ahead. That's yeah. This is where it's it. Very first time. Yeah. No, it says "Hero Israel" a number of times. It I says believe. "Hero Israel" as an injunction to here comes some kind of commandment or here comes uh, some particular piece of law or something. Um, thank you, Bert. As uh, this is the first. This formulation of Shema, Shema Yisrael, Yud Hey Vav Hey Eloheinu, Yud Hey Vav Hey Echad. This is where it first we first see it. Um, yes, that's a great question. So, yeah, one more question, then we're going to... I was going to say, it's, uh, it's interesting that this is towards the end. This is the last book when mm-hmm. this is the foundation, essentially, of our faith and most of our, our, our understanding of God as our God and God as one, and that it's at the end. And that makes me interested to why this wasn't shared in the beginning or why this wasn't the first thing, but this is the ending. And it, it echoes that this is the last thing we say before we go to bed. This is the last thing we say before we die. This is what we take home. This is our, this is our ending. Fantastic. Um, you're absolutely right that it comes toward the end of the Torah. Uh, is remarkable in and of itself. And sort of we have to go through a lot of the story arc of the Torah and uh, unpack some of the various pieces. We have to go through the Exodus and enter the land and all the, well, we haven't quite entered the land yet, but the entire uh, narrative arc of stories of the patriarchs, all of them, the matriarchs, all of that, uh, we don't quite get this line through any of that. We have to sort of arrive at this piece. So um, this, is, this is not the first statement that there's only one God. No. Because the assumption is from the beginning of Genesis yes. that there is only one God. And the Ten Commandments, well, I'm not sure whether it says there is only one God. It's a little it says, bit I'm, complicated. I'm, I'm, this particular God. It's a, the, the sort of the roots and the origins of it and sort of where Genesis picks up in the, um, in the beginning, all of that, and sort of what the nature of that theology is. Um, in Jewish text through Jewish history and the Talmud versus what ancient uh, Israelites and what might have been believed in the ancient Near East. These are, uh, we're, that gets a little bit complicated, but I am actually, that does take us to uh, where we're continuing with this. I want to get into ancient Near Eastern theology. Is there another, uh, you have a question on this? In most civilizations at mm-hmm. time, a god represented something that was important mm-hmm. in one's life for agriculture, for mm-hmm. protection, so the question here is, what does God represent to us? What is his role in our life? We're going to get there. We're, <laughs> that's where we're going. Uh, first, I want to unpack a little bit of what you talked about, about that, what a God was in the ancient Near East, what that meant. So um, contemporary biblicists understand that in the ancient Near East, polytheism was common. There were lots of different gods. Um, but one piece I want to touch upon uh, and this might be a little bit uh, counterintuitive, is that it wasn't that one guy necessarily believed in a whole bunch of different gods. It was that one guy in this town had believed in this god, and then the next town over had their god. Um, if you, that there is this idea that God is attached to place physically, that a god is attached to a physical place, that that's the, where that god has power. So... If you come to this town, you get the storm god. If you come to this other town, you get the sea monster god. Um, And those gods held power in those places, and the storm god didn't get to have sovereignty over the sea monster god's town. Uh, The exception to that would be when the people in the sea god's town would conquer the other town, and then the theological understanding was actually that, okay, the sea god must have been stronger, and therefore the sea god gets to have power in this place. Either way, deity, the idea of deity of God, is strongly, strongly attached to place. Um, 
This is a strange aside, but I'm actually serious when I tell you that there is a computer game predicated on this notion that came out 15 years ago, a very interesting sort of theological commentary, a cultural commentary, but we won't go into that at the moment. So back to Shema. Shema actually blows this notion out of the water. Uh, what we think of oftentimes, we think about Shema being revolutionary in terms of its uh, statement, this assertion of radical monotheism. Um, but it also functionally, in terms of how we carry it, renounces this direct attachment, this uh, fusing of God and place. So the question is, how does it do that? yud heh vav heh is our God. yud heh vav heh is one. Um, why wouldn't that be linked to place in the ancient world? Well, the other thing I want to get into about this papyrus that I mentioned from the second century is that the formatting, it came alongside and was discovered along with uh, translations of that same set of passages into Greek. And it was discovered, uh, copies of this in various pieces were discovered around the Mediterranean basin. So here you have this assertion that God, that yud heh vav heh, that the tetragrammaton, the name of our God, is our God, and that that God is one, and that is being carried and projected by people outside of just this one particular land. And that's a really revolutionary thing. In other words, we know historically that it had traveled enough to have religious significance to people beyond the traditional boundaries of the polity of Israel. So beyond those borders, you have people now declaring their relationship with God, that God is one, and that their relationship to God, as outlined in subsequent traditional paragraphs of the Shema, as we see woven together, can actually have an impact on you and can be part of your life, that relationship with God, wherever you are. Now, I want to be clear about this, uh, that God is holy everywhere. Doesn't that notion that God is holy wherever you are and you can have that relationship doesn't negotiate, doesn't uh, negate the concept of holy spaces in the traditional Israelite text, i.e., what we think of as the land of Israel. The revolutionary thing is what I said, that you can have holy spaces and holy places and shrines in those places, places that do have that divine significance, and in addition to that, you can have a relationship with God beyond those borders. And you can take your God with you. That's right. That God actually is everywhere. That God is with you if you are in different places, in addition. Which is not surprising considering that large portions of the Jewish intellectual community mm -hmm. were in Babylonia. That's right. And not in Eretz Yisrael. That's right, too. Um, At the, the point where we believe this was codified or redacted or written, mm -hmm. however you want to do it, that was after the dispersion, mm -hmm. and there still were very large uh, numbers of Jews and rabbinic academies and everything in, around Baghdad. And That's right. Uh, Modern-day uh, Fallujah, actually, in Iraq, the site of that combat, was the was called Pumbadita and was actually one of the centers where the Babylonian Talmud was written, which is the sort of um, dominant Talmud that we read over what we also refer to as uh, the Jerusalem Talmud. So um, I want to circle back now. You mentioned the dispersion. Um, we're now going to circle back to Tisha B'Av. Um, the core of what makes Tisha B'Av such a tragedy is the destruction of the sacred place of the temples, the sacred space there, the holy of holies at the center of the temple where we understood that God would physically dwell. This was the understanding theologically um, of ancient Israel back when the temple stood in Jerusalem. Again, this is theologically challenging. It sort of is its own direction to unpack the idea of God dwelling in a physical space. Um, so we're going to table that discussion uh, for another time. But uh, the point is that these were physical shrines in which we understand, which we understood to have theological significance, and the Babylonians and Romans destroyed them. I can't even begin to imagine what it would have meant for those Jews who lived through those upheavals um, of their most physically sacred being utterly decimated in that way. So what is now the theological Jewish response to Tisha B'Av, to the destruction of location of God? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. yud heh vav -Heh, the Blessed Holy One, is our God, and yud heh vav -Heh, the Blessed Holy One, is alone, is one.
And this does not cease to speak to the Jewish reality. Despite this destruction and the subsequent dispersion of Jews across the Mediterranean basin, as our people left that ancient land, our shrines were destroyed, but our relationship with God endured. As Jews landed in provinces in North Africa and Mediterranean Europe, their relationship with God endured. As you said beautifully, God was with them. They took their God with them in that way. So, the text of Shema remained the same, but the project of relating to the divine through text, this very traditionally Jewish project, did change over time. Um, Bert was talking about how uh, we say it now when we go to sleep at night and when rising in the morning, and this idea of saying it before bed. So this gets unpacked first in the Mishnah in Hebrew and then later uh, in Aramaic and the Gemara, uh, the two works that become the Talmud. They look at uh, the via hafta that comes afterward, and they look at uh, when you say that and and the conditions under which you say that, and when you say it if you're traveling, all of these different pieces. They get into the project of actually, okay, so what do we do with this piece? How do we actually live this? How do we relate to it? How do we use it? What role does it functionally play in our lives? Um, And so we have those early uh, efforts to unpack Shema all the way up through um, contemporary times. I heard it said that Michael Birnbaum, a uh, psychology professor, said in a very tongue-in-cheek sort of way today that the Shema can be understood to say that at most, Jews have one God. (laughs) Think about that for a moment. (laughs) So now here's another take. I'm going to take us in a completely different direction now. The the direction of the Ishbitzer Rebbe. The Ishbitzer Rebbe was a Hasidic Jewish leader from the early 19th century, and his was a mystical sort of take on it. He was well-versed and uh, well-steeped in the Kabbalah and the Jewish mystical traditions. And he was reading uh, the the Talmud tractate Ta'anit, where it's discussing um, the different ways of how one is actually supposed to say Shema and sort of concretely what it would look like. And he says, well, what that's going to look like in the future is that There will be a circle of all the tzaddikim, all of the righteous, will all come together in a circle, and the holy, blessed holy one, Akadosh Baruch Hu, will come down and dance with them in this circle. Almost thinking of like a hora kind of thing. So he takes the very concrete, this is how you're supposed to say it, and sort of throws that out the window to a very loose associative kind of thing um, in that mystical vein. And exactly what the future is supposed to mean, that's hard to tell as well, whether that's understood to be something that's messianic or something that he saw as coming. So it's a very uh, abstract and difficult to pin down sort of notion, this idea of the actual recitation of the Shema being dancing a hora, essentially, with the righteous and with God present. So what's significant about that or what really spoke to me is this idea of this circle, this idea that there is not a beginning or an end, that it is actually this very democratic sort of thing where there's nobody on a bima, nobody is higher or lower, and actually this notion that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Blessed Holy One, is part of that circle with all the righteous people. Um, Emma, our uh, intern over here, Emma Geyer, I uh, spent some time learning Va'edchanan with me uh, in preparation to think about this, uh, this Parsha and this Torah teaching. And one of the, thing, the themes that popped up to us is this theme of transmission, of this theme of passing it down. Um, and that's where this circle sort of ties into it. There's another uh, phrase in Torah that comes up. It's a very complicated truism in Jewish text. Ein mukdam me'uchar b'Torah. There's no such thing as early or late in Torah. It's this sort of atemporal notion in Judaism and Jewish text. It's the same concept that uh, lends to the people who all argued together in the Talmud. It has them all arguing with each other as if they were all seated at the table. But we know that historically they might not have lived within two or three hundred years of each other. But this concept still remains that the temporal notion of it is not what's core. What's core are the ideas. What's core is the transmission. What's core is what continues down to people and with people. So another piece about Shema that I find just endlessly fascinating is that in the Talmud, it also says that when you're saying the Shema, the Dalit at the very end of the sentence of Echad, you're supposed to elongate it. You're supposed to let it ring forth. Right, well, exactly. That becomes a really problem because it's a, it's a closed syllable. How do you linguistically extend a closed syllable like that? 
Yeah, you could say echad, but again, you're not on the dalid. Um, you get echad, da, 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 da. Well, it's still closing and opening that same syllable. So we have an answer, actually, from, um, from scholars of ancient Hebrew. There is an understanding, if you look at all of the, uh, the voweling in the text, the different dots and so forth that we found in there, those are uh, put onto the text in about the year 1000 or so. They weren't on the original Hebrew in the Torah. But the idea, say these scholars is that the pronunciation of Hebrew has actually changed over time, that those dots inside of letters actually indicate various kinds of gutturals and various different kinds of pronouncing those letters. Um, And they would have understood that a thousand years ago, but today perhaps those pronunciations are actually lost to us. We, so that pronouncing that open dalit isn't something that we understand what that means now, even though that would have made perfect sense back then because of how the language has simply changed in its pronunciation. Um, there are folks who find that very disturbing, um, and perhaps it is. It's a little bit uprooting to think, gosh, that you know we weren't saying this exactly the same as our forebears were, but there's also something very beautiful about it, because just as we have to say it differently, so does our understanding of it change. This is this point that you made just a little while ago about we have to uh, refigure what is our relationship with God now. It's the same as having to figure out exactly how we speak these words, how we live this thing in this time. Yeah? I was just going to mention, I guess, the ayin and the word shema and the dalit at the end are Mm -hmm. both larger, is that true? That's in the Torah, too, in our book. So if you put those two together, that's aid, which is witness. That's right. So, like, this is witness to our people or something like that. I guess somebody must have said that. I thought it was careless editing. There's a typo. Well, uh, to hear the rabbis tell it, there are no typos in Torah. (laughs) So, yeah, another... uh... Well, I'm struggling with this idea of Because mm-hmm. you always think of that as one, right? Mm-hmm. You think of one, you think of one somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But now, if you give me this image of we're all in a circle, mm-hmm. and God is alone, I almost put God in the middle of that circle, mm-hmm. or on the outside of the circle, or all of a sudden God is present in a different way than, than God had been present when I thought of God as one. Mm-hmm. I recently heard a podcast with uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, Mm -hmm. who was talking about some Kabbalistic ideas of God. And it was very, very interesting. He said, imagine a very large circle, which is God. And then below that circle, a very small circle, which is us. This is the typical Western Platonic idea of us and our relationship to God. God's up there, we're down here, we talk to God, God does, God doesn't do it, you know, basically a a puppeteer, Marion. He said the other thing is, you got the big circle that's God, and our circle is inside that circle, not below it, but inside of it. And then he said sometimes, he was talking about mysticism, Mm -hmm. in the mystical experience, the borderline of that circle disappears. So th- he and I've heard other mm-hmm. people, um, Rabbi Brad Artson also talks about process theology, mm-hmm. that uh, really we are prisoners to some extent with Western civilization that has this kind of king and subject idea, by the way, a lot of which is in the Psalms, mm-hmm. which by the way were written by a king, but that's, at least some of them were written by a king. So it's not surprising that there's a lot of king imagery. But yeah, the, the one other interpretation is that this oneness is that we are not separate as in below, but we are part of God. And that brings up the idea of godliness, etc. I mean, there's other problems with that particular paradigm as well. But that, I think, addresses partially what I think what you were talking about. Yeah, well, it just changed like the, you know, God is alone, mm-hmm. and if we're here in a circle, let's say we are Israel, and God is alone with us, and this, like, I, it just feels like a different dynamic. Sure. I think... I don't, I don't think alone means apart. 
in this in you this You do context. not take things apart. You do oh. take things apart. No, I, 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 there is one God. That's the way I do. So one understanding theologically is that alone actually is thinking about, so hearkening back to that polytheism at this time when all the different gods were all together. They were all in their sort of class of gods, and they might be uh, working together or conflicting with one another. Um, that it's this idea that, no, that, that our God is alone, that there isn't some pantheon that our God is part of, that that aloneness talks about how this status of godhood, that this divinity, um, that there aren't other competing divinities in that way. Um, does that sort of answer where you're... Mm-hmm. Did you have a thought of? No, just it's just so many different uh, interpretations. And you can practically take anything you want. But there's no question that achad means one. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's, it simply means that uh, there are no others. It's but that's one thing it means. The other one is there are no others. It's not divisible um, everything are... is part of God is there another word in Hebrew for uh, alone uh, in contemporary Hebrew alone is levad um, thinking about the significance of that word or it could also mean this is our only God because mm-hmm. it does say before there before that it says Eloheinu which means our God so one could read this as this is the only God for us. That's right. Um, which doesn't address the issue as to whether there are other gods for other peoples. So the other, uh, that's right. Uh, the other piece that's a little bit gets complicated is uh, Eloheinu does, is the possessive uh, of ours. It's also the plural. We also see God written as Elohim. Elohim, right. Uh, throughout a lot of text, and we, which is a plural Hebrew ending, we hold that to mean that it is the singular. There have been a lot of, I mean, that's that's a pretty ancient. Uh, I mean, dating back even to this being sourced in this, the rabbis understand that Elohim just happens to be the word, the construct in which this God concept is expressed. So if the name of the God is yud Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton, El Elohim, Elyon, El Elyon, like the God of the, of the most lofty, uh, elevated God, um, that those are words that describe God or a God. Elim would be like other gods. Um, so when you see it talking about uh, like the gods of um, like the Baalim, for instance, the the prophets and priests of Baal, this other god, um, they talk about these other Elim of the other people. Um, but again, it's a complicated piece that here we have something declaring the oneness of God while also putting it in this plural form that Yudhe Vavhe are our gods, literally, even though we understand Yudhe Vavhe to be singular. Any reactions or responses, or have other people run into that question about Elohim before? Oh, <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. Um, it could be mm-hmm. this was a text that developed over a long period of time, mm-hmm. and then subsequently developed and subsequently developed after that. Mm-hmm. That monotheism, strict monotheism, was in fact planted here but actually grew and was refined over a much longer historical period of time. And we go back, it's really nice for the rabbis to mm-hmm. say, oh, it says gods, but it really is God. It says El Elyon, which means the highest God, mm-hmm. which kind of implies that there's a not highest God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I believe that in the second paragraph of the Shema, okay, mm-hmm. it, it says uh, that you shall... Uh, if you serve other gods mm-hmm. and pay attention to them, you'll have a problem, mm-hmm. assuming that there are other gods. I think it's clear that whether there's one god or other gods, we believe that yod vav is the top. So 
There's tension in a lot of these works, and you're rightfully lifting up that tension. Uh, you read this throughout the prophets, too, that the prophets are just over and over again beside themselves irked with the people worshiping, worshiping other gods and lusting after other gods and all of that. Like that's, That is the sort of their prime piece that, uh, that seems to irritate them to no end. Is So we know that indicates to us that in that era in the time of ancient Israel um, before perhaps concurrently with the first temple there was still other cultic um, worship going on of other gods that somebody might have their little shrine off in the corner that they weren't telling you know the prophets or the priests or somebody about that there's actually a transition period here in which the people of Israel was becoming the people of Israel. It's not a quick or easy or neat, seamless thing. Like, we see the rough edges of it all through the Bible in the uh, the tension between this worship of, you know, people's different folk gods or the god of a town or something like that versus the worship of, as they understood it, the one true god um, of, of Israel, yud heh vav um, and I've also f- found it interesting that it ke- the text keeps on saying, mm-hmm. don't go after other gods that you have not experienced. And that it gives as a reason for yud heh vav is that you have experiences. This is the God, I mean, the, this is the, God the, that the took you out of Egypt. first commandment right. says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt. And the interesting part of that to me, which relates mm-hmm. to Shema, is that's depending on our perceptions. Mm-hmm. It's not saying believe just because. Mm-hmm. It's saying you have seen this with your eyes. You have experienced this, that your own intelligence is a confirmation of this. Mm-hmm. Also, that Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, that it is in reference to us. It is not just that uh, here, Israel, God is the God, that yud vav is the God, yud vav is one. It's that yud vav that God is our God. Uh, it is, it's inescapable that God exists in relation to us, that there, like, there is this empirical reality, this idea that God is one, and that we are perpetually in relation to that, that there isn't uh, some idea of, okay, well, that's out there, and we're sort of over here. There isn't, you mentioned that uh, idea sort of in some kinds of Western uh, post-Platonic thought that, that there is this differentiation between, okay, so there's the people and there's the God, and never the two shall meet. Um, it's an anecdotal piece. Uh, one of my rabbis, Joel Hecker, the, so the professor of Jewish mysticism at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, he teaches all the Kabbalah. On the first day of class, he draws the two circles, God and here are the people, and he said, we're discussing everything that's between the two. <laughs> this is what mysticism is, and that's what that sort of experiential, ecstatic, uh, lived experience of being close to God through a system like Kabbalah, a very... Um, a system that's difficult to reconcile with Western uh, post-Enlightenment <laughs> rationalism in particular, but it's another kind of relationship with God. So, I just read a book on, on the Shema which suggested that depending on which word you emphasize, mm-hmm. it takes on a different type of a meaning. So normally we say Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, every word is the same. Mm-hmm. But if you said Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, Mm-hmm. Or you said Shema Yisrael, or Shema Yisrael Adonai, or Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu. That's true for anything. That, no, I understand. Yeah. No, but I mean, but with this particular thing, it, by stressing different words, you get like a different perspective on it. Does somebody, uh, in line with that, does somebody want to tell me how the English sentence is punctuated? Exclamation. No, period. Here, comma. There, where you put that comma is right. Where you put that comma is very important in that whole statement. Oh, right. yeah. That actually can alter the meaning of it as well, in terms of underst- what that line means. If you move that comma around different places, the idea is that there are probably two clauses there. But where and how you break them up and how you think about them, we're very used to breaking it up in that way, putting the comma there, that it's almost hard to imagine. But if you move that comma around, it actually changes it as well. Um, of course, there's no comma in the Torah. Exactly. Exactly. You, or their periods. Exactly. You're speaking to where I was going with this. The Torah is not punctuated. The Torah, those, um, the verses in which that it's broken up into, uh, actually, that's a pretty recent medieval innovation. 
Um, so I, the idea of breaking it up into those num- or rather numbering it in those specific verses, because we had our parshiot, these you know the parsha of the week, and so we had that system of understanding chunks of Torah. But there aren't numbers, there isn't punctuation. We don't have the voweling. The voweling doesn't come until, like I said, about the year one thousand eleven hundred. So what we do with that text uh, becomes very important in terms of how we understand it. So I want to take us back to this point of, okay, well, what about us? What do we do with this? What does this mean to us? So if you think about Jewish tradition as a kind of stream that progresses down toward us, uh, you know, giving, transmitting text and so forth, Shema could be one of its tributaries, one set of tradition that flows down into our modern lives today. Um, And just as this is Shabbat Nachamu, the Shabbat of consolation, um, I think there's a great deal of consolation and comfort to be derived from both that we can take God with us where we go to all kinds of places, and also that this stream of tradition has been unceasing, that it has continued downward, that we have the Shema from initially the Bible, from the Torah, then we see it in this papyrus from you know lancing out all over the uh, ancient Mediterranean basin. We have them discussing it in Babylonia in the times of the Talmud. We have the uh, medieval Kabbalists discussing what are the resonances of it. We have the, um, the Hasids talking about this more experiential, ecstatic idea of dancing the Shema. And now we have it today as the central piece of our services, um, as the central piece of Jewish theology. So the question is, what do we transmit? Um, we have refined, sharpened, changed, and reimagined our relationship with the Shema through Jewish history. Um, This sort of, as a microcosm, is what we think about today as the Reconstructionist Project. It's how we understand our Jewish history, our Jewish heritage. Reconstructionism is predicated on the idea that not only does religion change and evolve over the times, but that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. And to be part of the Reconstructionist Project is to take an active role in figuring out, okay, what does this mean? In determining how does it resonate with our peoplehood today? How do we teach it to our children, to our grandchildren? How do we transmit it? What is the stamp that we get to put on it in this moment of Jewish time as it continues forth in that chain of transmission? Does anybody have any thoughts? It's a huge question, but so what does Shema mean now? I want to pose that question back to you all that you asked a moment ago. What does Shema mean today? Well, yeah. Today, when the field of neuroscience is growing, mm-hmm. I mean, you think about the fact that all history <coughs> every civilization seemed to need a God or create a God, and now we understand that a lot of that has to do with chemicals in our brain. So in mm-hmm. a way, we created God because there's some kind of human need to have this idea. Mm-hmm. So I guess as we understand more of it, I mean, when I once posed this to um, our late Rabbi Cheryl, mm-hmm. she said that makes me believe in God even more that there would be chemicals that would create God. Mm-hmm. God must have created the chemicals. <coughs> you know, there's a lot of ways of looking at. It. But I just view it as um, that really humans felt the need to create this throughout history. Mm-hmm. It serves a, a psychological need. I guess. Uh, I think you bring up a really important strand, which is that. Um, There are faith traditions that read the Bible very, very literally. Judaism is not one that does that. And I am not just speaking of Reconstructionist or progressive Judaism here. Even within Orthodox Judaism and very, very traditional uh, Haredi Judaism, uh, there is an idea that you don't just open the Bible and just read it. You have to read it through the lens of our interpretations. You read it through the lens of Rashi, through the lens of the Talmud. There's an idea in Judaism that interpretation is always part of our relationship with Torah. Um, Which interpretations you choose and who you choose to listen to, how you choose to interpret it, that's where you get into some of the different uh, uh, the different movements of Judaism, different Jewish uh, ideologies, different Jewish theologies. But there is a pretty uh, unified idea that you read the Torah through interpretation. And now, today, we uh, are blessed to have interpretations, to have lenses through which to view the Torah, such as 
neuroscience or neurobiology. We have archaeology, which teaches us an awful lot that, for instance, uh, medieval Kabbalists, they weren't excavating anything. It's just a different lens through which to understand our tradition. Um, so neuroscience, that's a great... Uh, it's a great way to approach and think about it. And um, I very much, uh, I love that line from uh, Rabbi Luert, uh, Zichron Alivracha, that, uh, that that particular combination of chemicals that might fire off in our brains that one, in that way, in just that perfect way for us to experience something that is divinity, ah, well, that's kind of holy. That's kind of sacred right there, that all of those chemicals fire in just the perfect way for us to experience something that we recognize as divine. Thought, yeah. I also think what's really beautiful about the Shema is that in our life we're so busy, we're constantly doing things and we rarely take the time to really um, think about what it is that we're practicing, why we're Jewish. And I think, at least for me, this hones in on the fact of there is a God for me. It's our God. This is not somebody else's or pastimes, but this is ours. And it's one God. And oneness to me is this unification of people, of space of time, that is really comforting. So when I say it, it it, uh, it allows me to come back to what my faith is for me. And it, it, as so many interpretations can say, it, I like that there is an open-endedness about it. Um, just to re- reveal a piece about Emma, one thing that she's considering right now is rabbinical school as a possibility, and I think that that would uh, that she would be very well suited to uh, that sort of um, vocational uh, approach, that kind of approach to Jewish communal leadership, based on uh, a lot of the drashas that she has shared today. I'm glad to have her be part of our study. So, um, before we conclude, does anybody have any final thoughts that they want to share? So, yes, yes. Okay. Um, uh, Let's hear it. There's a, okay in in this book. Okay, Which book? The right one. Yeah, he's got the green one. Okay. Um, okay. So, so close to. Okay, in this book. On page 1015, mm-hmm. um, the book of Numbers, chapter 33, mm-hmm. verse 2. Could you read verse 2 and explain that verse? I don't have the book in front of me. Could, would you be willing to? Okay. Verse 2. Verse 2. Could you read the verse and explain the verse? Moses recorded the starting points of their various marches uh, as directed by Yudhe-Vavhe. Their marches by starting points were as follows. Um, so you're asking in terms of what does it mean that Yudhe-Vavhe was directing? My question is, could you explain verse 2 in an easy way to understand what the verse is, the verse could you explain the verse in an easy, understandable way to make it more understandable? And I was trying to understand the verse. What I'm saying is I do not understand verse 2. Could you explain verse 2 where I might have a way of understanding that verse? Sure. So I think the context to this verse that's really important is uh, you find it at the end of Deuteronomy that uh, it says, Never again did arise a prophet like Moses who spoke to God panim el panim, face to face is what it seems. That Judaism understands that uh, Moshe, that Moses was really unique in terms of Moses' relationship with God. And so, um, so as part of that relationship that Moses ascended up Mount Sinai and was in this physical space of God in, in the context of receiving the Torah, that the Torah also being knowledge, the Torah being understanding, that those points... Um, of the march of uh, Yitziat Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt, were part of Moses' relationship with God, that Moses knew the way to go because of being in relationship with God in that way. Does that help? Okay, so what you're expressing is that you explain the verse perfectly. 
but there was one word in the verse that I needed an explanation. The word is um, recorded. Could you explain that word in an easy way, recorded? <clears throat> so, Vaiktov. So, Kotev is to write. Um, I think it's using recorded as a stand-in for Moses uh, understood and Moses kept and Moses had um, preserved in some way. Um, Vayiktov can be uh, literally like writing or it can actually be, uh, it uses that as engraving sometimes in the Torah. So Moses had somehow managed to um, preserve through some form of writing or something um, what those points were to understand where to go. You can think of it as a, as a navigational sort of thing. Um, um. When, when they use that word recording, mm-hmm. my question is, how did Moses record? What was his recording? Um, what, how did he record? So what I would, uh, this is a great question. If you can stay for a couple of minutes after this, let's talk about it then. We have to uh, sort of wrap up right now. But yeah, we can continue talking uh, after this in just a moment. I just want to uh, sort of wrap up this session right now. But save the place, and we'll talk about it in just a moment. Um, So again, I just want to visit back to Shema and uh, conclude there with that Shema is one microcosm of what is the Jewish project and the Reconstructionist project of today, of figuring out what it is in terms of what is our relationship with God, where do we go with that, how do we preserve that, and how do we transmit that, how do we teach that. Uh, I don't have any one monolithic answer for you, but I do want to posit that that is our task today, that in coming to sessions like these and thinking about it and sharing with families, uh, talking to people, other Jews, going to services, that this is sort of the project that we're driving right now is what does it what does it mean? How do we make sense of it and how do we live it in ways that are authentic and meaningful and powerful to us in our time and in our context uh, with all of these different lenses of interpretation, as you mentioned, uh, and all of our older interpretations, all of our text, how do we weave that into an understanding of who we are as Jews? It becomes a mind-bogglingly large project, um, but I'm excited to be on the journey of that project with you all.